Welcome to Disruption Blueprint with Shannon Spotswood from RFG Advisory. In this podcast, we help advisors grow their net worth, build their businesses, and maximize their independence. We've built an award-winning platform with innovative technology, comprehensive service, and a team of individuals who are experts in their field to serve advisors. Join us for this journey where we explore everything that has to do with running an independent advisor practice as we bring together successful advisors, industry experts, and innovative minds who are on the bleeding edge to challenge the status quo, foster new ideas, and create a path for advisors to unleash their growth potential. Now, on to the show. Dave, it is so awesome to have you join us uh, for an episode of Disruption Blueprint. Welcome, my friend. It's an honor to be here. Very exciting stuff. You know, one of the things I love about this episode in particular, not only is it Halloween, and so I got to invite my special guest, but you and I go way back to long before we were sitting in the seats that we're sitting in to the fields of San Francisco where we were playing flag football in our like early 20s and drinking yeah. beer on school nights. Yeah, when we had no clue what we were going to do with our lives. It was awesome. And here we are, you know, I won't say how many years later, but um <laughs> just a yeah, few. So good. So good. We got to get the team back together sometime. We we really do. But yeah. John Beta would love that. He can go make us run all those little plays he always tried Absolutely. to yeah. engineer. All right. Well, we're not going to talk football, even though it is football season. We're going to talk about your favorite topic and what you are just so well known for in the industry, M&A and all of the machinations and movement that are happening around growth and succession planning. I really can't wait to to dig in. I want to just set the table early on. We're sitting here. It's October 31st. So we're closing in probably on, I feel like one of the fastest years ever. So bring us up to speed on M&A activity year to date and what your thoughts are as we roll in to uh, 2024. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's fascinating. We're in this dynamic industry and it's been so dynamic. I mean, years ago, I started in this industry 20 years ago and M&A was just starting to get some momentum, uh, you know, launched and ran that platform at one of the major custodians. And, you know, after some some peaks and valleys, we ended up having nine successive record years of M&A activity, one year after another for nine straight being yet another record year. Uh, so that was leading up to 2023. And then the question, the big question mark is, are we going to see another record year this year? And I'd say probably not. We're 10 months into uh, a 12 month year, uh, 12 months this year. Uh, and, you know, the, the RAA M&A activity is down about 7%. So we got two quarters left. You know, it's not unusual to see surges in the, the fourth quarter, but I think it seems pretty unlikely that we'll have yet another record year. Now, that said, when I talk to reporters, I say, because, you know, reporters love to say it's down, the, the sky is falling, you know, it's all over and it's done. It, you know, it's not. We have this this wave of MA activity that's flowing across this industry, a natural period of consolidation for a hyper fragmented industry. Um, and, you know, this year... The, the wave is still going through. The crest is a little lower, but this wave is still going through the REA industry for some good reasons. So 2023, probably down. You know, it's not going to be materially down. It's really not going to be materially up. But I think 2023 will most likely be a down year. And then probably back to the races. 2024, I think the underpinnings are in place to drive up M&A activity. And I expect as interest rates recede too, we'll only see M&A activity increase. So we have another 
five years of probably increase in activity or more. One of the stats that I read that I kind of like reverberates in my brain is 10,000 advisors controlling $10 trillion worth of assets looking to retire in the next 10 years. And I love, you know, we all kind of consider the data that you and your team at DeVoe put together as like the Bible on activity. And the one thing that always stands out to me when I look at those bar graphs is while, you know, we're talking about nine straight record years, maybe a slight decline this year, then we're back to the races. But the numbers overall really are small considering the succession crisis wave that is building. So how much of that do you think we're not capturing in the data? And how much of that is just like there is a ton like Everest a few times over mountains to climb in order to really solve this crisis? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, a fellow nerd, Shannon, like, and I love you getting your your listeners to really look at the data and start to splice and dice it. So, you know, let's use those round numbers um, and say 10,000 firms in the industry. There's really only 5,000 that are 100 million or more in assets under management. So SEC registered firms. So, you know, and that's all of the data. When you look at Devo deal books and stuff like that, it's all 100 million or more in assets under management. It's not that smaller firms are bad. You know, they're great. But you know, being a nerd, we're going to know about every billion and $5 billion deal. We're probably going to know about every half billion dollar deal. We're probably going to know 75% of those that are 200 or so. But once you go under 100 million, there's 5,000 firms. They're small. They're not reported on. The data is going to get a little lumpy. So that's why we draw the line at 100 million. Now, within that zone, too, you think through, you know, for years, I, I've been talking about MA being up and people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, well, it's a succession. You know, there's a crisis in the industry. And I'm like, Succession is not driving M&A activity. The number one driver for years now has been scale. So firms that are feeling like, hey, I have 100 million or or even a billion or 5 billion these days, feeling like they need to be part of a bigger organization, which I think, you know, is great for your model too, sort of creating the synthetic scale that you folks do. Others are like selling to, to gain the scale. So, you know, for years now, we've seen the majority of these transactions where people are partnering with a bigger firm to have a broader set of capabilities, broader set of services they can offer their clients, you know, uh, operational efficiency, administrative headaches go away. All these things, you know, have been driving M&A activity. Now, succession is still important and succession planning is going to be more important. So, you know, I started 20 years ago in this industry. I mean, it was scary. Uh, succession planning, maybe, uh, 26% of the firms in the industry had a succession plan 20 years ago. So the good news is that after all this time, it's gone up. It's now like 35%, you know, it's horrid. It's horrible, right? So um, 35% of firms now have a written succession plan. And that lack of succession planning, that tragic lack of succession planning is going to drive this new wave of M&A activity we're going to see for years to come. Um, so, you know, if there's one takeaway from the call, you know, fear and aspiration is what drives all human behavior. I want to scare everyone. Get your succession plan in place. You can ruin your company without it. Your staff, you know, can be out on the streets. Your clients can be very unhappy. You know, I used to think about my grandma, uh, lovely Dorothy DeVoe, um, where, you know, the advisor is like, oh, I'll die with my boots on and dies with the boots on. And, you know, little Dorothy DeVoe um, gets this letter saying, hey, your advisor died. You're on your own. You know, she's like left to the wolves now. So, you know, hopefully folks, if they have one takeaway, it'll be put that succession plan in place. 
I read recently some data that you guys published in a recent survey that underscores exactly this, where, you know, 64 percent of the the advisors that you polled recognize that their lack of succession planning is a problem. And you just said the share the number 35 percent have one. I mean, it's staggering. I've been, you know, on this side of the industry now for seven years and the numbers aren't budging. Like we're just sitting here like aging, aging, not really doing anything about the succession crisis. And, you know, the number of conversations we certainly have around my succession plan, my my proactive strategy as an advisor is to die with my boots on. I'm going to work forever it's just untenable. I mean, to your point, it is not only disadvantageous to the clients, but it is leaving so much enterprise value on the table. And it feels like, and correct me if I'm wrong, like now we're running, you know, you want to scare everyone, we're running straight into kind of the jaws of ego. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm just not willing to have the hard conversations to be realistic about I am aging to be thinking very intentionally about the hard work that has to be done to turn my advisory practice into an organization that has longevity and has a reason for multi-generational experience with the clients. Yeah, yeah, you're you're so spot on. I mean, a, a few thoughts for for years. I was perplexed. I'm like, you know, everyone knows. You just heard one of the stats. Everyone knows they need a succession plan. Everyone knows this industry has that exposure point, but the numbers aren't creeping up. And for years, I thought, okay, it's a psychological slippery slope. You just said it well. You start planning to do succession planning, and then you you realize, oh wow, this means not only work but change change control. I'm going to give up things. It means retirement? Am I going to be bored? Am I going to go crazy? Retirement kind of means you're going to end up dying. I don't want to die. I'm not going to do this. So I I think that's part of the logic that one can fall into. I think you touched on the other element. It's a lot of work. Yeah, It's a lot of work and it can become overwhelming pretty quickly. You know, I have this slide where it it sort of shows, all right, to do a succession plan, you got to figure out, is it internal or external? And that's not an easy question. And I want to come back to that. And then you got to think through, it's it's really the migration of management and the migration of equity. Those are two completely different things. And management, you know, you're getting into, all right, you got to create career pathing for your people. You got to determine partnership criteria, what the buy-in looks like. You got to value the firm. You got to have deal structure. You got to have buyback clauses, which people never put in place, which is just a, a an Achilles heel for so many of these firms. Once they become shareholders, you got to get into... How are decisions made now? If you own 1%, right. does that mean you make no decisions or some decisions? You know, it, it gets into ultimately the economics of this. It, it becomes overwhelming so quickly. And Shannon, I think people just, you know, they they freeze in their tracks and they just delay and delay and delay. And, you know, since since we're friends, I'll share some inside baseball. We're, we're going to come out with the, the newest study. And um, we haven't reported on this yet, but it's going to be down to, um, I think it's 18% now of advisors that say, RG2 can't afford to buy us out. And it's gone from, I think, like 34% a couple of years ago. And it's been the steady 28, now 18%. So we have less than a fifth of the firms that know that G2 can't afford it. There's a whole nother, you know, 40% that don't know. Um, so, you know, what I'd encourage folks too is, is there's this great thing where so many advisors want to sell internally. I think it's wonderful about this industry. There's that natural bias. 
But, you know, as you just said, time is marching on. And not only are you getting older, your firm's probably becoming worth more. And there's just a point where, you know, the value of the firm exceeds the grasp of G2 and G3 and you just can't sell internally anymore. Some of the work that you've been doing, and thank you for sharing that inside baseball. That's super interesting. Some of the work that you've been doing at DeVoe is, you know, you obviously are known for your transactional work, but you're 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 really digging in and developing a significant amount of expertise and talent around your coaching. And what you're touching on here is, you know, not only change management, but some pretty radical evolutionary, revolutionary change within these firms. Because what we are hearing from G2 and G3 is that they want to do things very differently. They are not interested in I'm chief cook, bottle washer, and CEO, and I'm just going to take on and off those hats. I'm going to underinvest in tech. I'm going to underinvest in talent. I'm going to do all the investment management, which is really how G1 has built this industry. Yep. So you you're running into this really interesting problem where G1 has value in the firm but so much change has to be put in place for G2 to be able not only to afford it to actually even want to work there and run it and have this be their life's work. So talk to us about, you know, what you're doing from a coaching perspective on that. How, you know, the easiest lens, I think, is to establish some KPIs as just a framework for targets and then walking back to all the complexities that you just laid out that, you know, becomes the overwhelming problem that no one wants to solve. Yeah, yeah. There, there's so much. And this is why I love talking to you. Like in, in a couple sentences, you unpack all these rich things to get into. So I'll I'll probably, I'll try to be brief, but bring me back as appropriate. I mean, what we're talking about, I love this phrase, what got you here won't get you there, you know? So congratulations, you know, everyone listening, you've built this great organization, as you just alluded to, Shannon. Oftentimes it's, it's it's the personal heroics of the founder that has created this company as it is. It's the the control freak nature of the founder of the company that has created this company. And, you know, not only does G2 want to do things differently, frankly, you should want them to do things differently. You know, you needed to be that, you know, multi-wearing hat person back in the day to get to the next level and the next level beyond, you need to start to specialize. You need to start to have, you know, dedicated management. You want to have not 10% of your time focused on marketing, you eventually want to head a marketing, you know, and a team of marketing, et cetera. So, you know, part of the coaching we do, um, and, you know, Tim coaches, coaches me on running the company. He's one of our, you know, special advisors here. Um, Jane Williams, she's another special advisor. She coaches me on, on the human capital side, not my greatest strength. Um, and then we have two others. And part of that is a lot of that is coaching change management, willing to get comfortable with giving up control. So the next generation can come in and take your company to the next level. Now, switching gears over to, over from that, from the day-to-day coaching to, you know, what, what the key metrics are, you know, at the end of the day, um, there's a myriad of different factors that go into valuation, but valuation is really going to be driven by three major categories. Um, so within those, you know, it, it's the growth of the organization. Um, and sadly, you know, the growth of this, of this industry 
has declined. I'm talking about strict organic growth, backing out the stock markets, backing out M&A or people coming or joining the firm. You know, what is your organization on an organization level running at? And it's gone from 9% about five years ago in 2017 down to 3%. You know, I think it was just over a year ago. And now it's come up to about 4%. And there's data points out there. I think Schwab just reported 2.5 on average uh, over a certain period. You know, this is this is sad for the industry. We have such a great business model we should be growing much faster. But I think, you know, that's one key performance indicator to look at is, you know, what's your growth rate? How does that compare to the industry average? You also want to look at a subcomponent as how much of that is based on charisma, you know, and gee, stumbling and tripping over getting clients versus a nice, elegant, methodical machine, a comprehensive integrated growth program and strategy that will drive sustained growth for years to come. So that growth side of the equation is key. You know, when I think about profitability, I almost think about it as a, a as a health check. It's a great health metric, you know, and if you're running at single digits profitability, you know, you got some health problems. If you're running at 50 or 60% margins, you, you probably got some health problems, you know, or you're going to have them pretty soon. So really thinking through and some of the business models vary, but being in that appropriate zone for not only the profitability, but the, the direct versus indirect, those are elements as well. And that part of it is you want to th start thinking through, um, you know, sort of the, the risk factors. So, you know, growth, profitability, and risk being those three categories, the risks of this organization. So some of those things can be legal, like, do you have non-competes, non-solicits in place that people leave? You know, um, some of it can be just a uh, economic and, and uh, shareholder focused. Do you have you know uh, metrics so that if someone leaves the firm on retirement or sadly death, they're going to be treated differently than if they leave on bad terms? You have to fire them, or they leave and they even steal stuff on the way out, not just pencils and paper and paper clips. But maybe clients, you know, do we want to do something about that? You know, everything in, in over on the other side of the continuum, clients, do you have concentrated clients? Or you and I have talked about the, the weighted average age of a given client base. And, and if it's too old, that, that becomes a depleted oil well. So within that, you know, part of that is, is thinking through that risk profile. When we do valuation, we have 48 different risk factors we're looking at to say, hey, do you have this? What's your metric? How do you compare here? But it just starts to create an industrial strength organization, uh, a company that's going to be able to sustain a bumper bruise that firms will, firms and industries will invariably have. I love that. Industrial, say that one more time. Industrial strength. Organization. Industrial organization. strength organization. Yeah. That's a great turn of phrase. One more time, you crank through that really fast. What yeah. do you think is the target profitability margin for a high-performing firm? Investing yeah, in the resources to drive organic growth, let's call it, you know, three to five times the industry. Yeah, three to three to time, five times the industry. What? I'm sorry. What do you think is an appropriate like operating margin, EBITDA yeah. margin yeah. for a firm that's investing to be growing at, you know, let's call it 15 to 20 percent organically? Yeah. Let's go through a couple of these. So right now, that industry, if true organic growth, maybe you're getting 7 percent over the market. You know, there's market nerds that are going to be smarter than me on that side. But, you know, and then hope, you know, the average right now is 4 percent organic growth. So let's just start with someone being average or hopefully a little bit above average, right? You know, those organizations should be having, you know, 25, even 28% margins. The the margins of the industry have been ticking up a bit over the last couple of years. So, you know, I'd target 28%. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you're growing really quickly 
And, and you know, we'd love to see 5%. We'd love to see 9%. If you're growing at 30%, your margins should compress. So sometimes we have people thinking, gee, you know, high margin, high growth, we're doing everything right. And I'm like, uh, mm. that's not right because you know, you need to be investing ahead of the curve. If you're growing at 30%, we have some of our clients that are doing that. They're running at almost single digit margins. yeah, And appropriately so, because you're doing the math and you're like, okay, 80 clients per advisor, we're growing at this growth trajectory, blah, blah, blah. You know, it doesn't take long until you're bumping up against 90, 100 plus. You got to be hiring, training, migrating relationships well ahead of the curve. You know, human capital is 75% of your expense structure. You got to be hiring, you know, operations and technology people, you know, management, you need to hire all ahead. So, you know, even though a traditional firm should ideally be in that, you know, 25 to 30% zone, if you're growing really, really fast, you know, your margins should be compressed because you just need to turn the wheel a little faster before you hit that curve in the sports car. And I don't want to turn this into a shameless plug for RFG, but since it is my podcast, uh, you know, we're really proud of the fact that our advisors who were fully engaged in the utilization of all of the services that we offer, including the investments we're making in branding and marketing, as well as investment management, are growing at 19.1% organically. So that feels really awesome. I want you to repeat that. I know. Everyone listening. 19.1%. 19.1%. This is huge. And they're doing it in that, you know, margin range that is actually closer to, you know, the 30 to 50% range. And it's because they're leveraging all of, you know, coming back to your point on scale, they're leveraging the expertise and the frictionless experience that, that were, that were, um, providing through the platform. But I think it's a real, you know, and we're not alone in this. There's a, there, you know, we have some incredible competitors out there who are, um, I think, really upping the ante. And we're going to talk about this in a minute on can you go it alone? Or is the industry now just becoming such a fierce competition for talent? There's so much that has to be synthesized from a compliance perspective. There is a never ending, you know, steady drumbeat uh, that I know makes Michael Kitsis very happy in his technology roadmap. But it is very difficult to have a clear line of sight on what should I be investing in from a tech perspective and what bright, shiny objects am I just chasing? And then, of course, the investment management. So the the industry is becoming increasingly complex and difficult to survive on your own at the same time that we're running into this succession crisis. I mean, I think it's setting up for probably one of the most disruptive segments of time these next five to 10 years that the retail wealth management industry has ever seen. And then you layer on top of that, all the private equity money that's come in. You layer on top of that. I don't know if you saw that Elon Musk was tweeting or whatever it's called now, Xing. Mm-hmm. about how he wants to build a financial services platform in one year. Like we've always feared like the tech guys coming to play in our sandbox. And then we've got this generational wealth transfer. So a changing expectation from what it means to have a very rich and meaningful client experience. Like we're about ready to have some fun. You're going to be busy. Coaching yeah. is is going to be busy. Yeah, yeah. Now, I think it's it's a fascinating time for the industry. And, you know, I'm reading Elon Musk's book right now, like 
when he started, he was like, you know, PayPal, he wanted to call X and he wanted to have all these financial services. So I'm not shocked to hear that he just announced that. I haven't seen that yet. But um, yeah, we're we're in an interesting time. You know, I talked earlier about the how dynamic the industry is. I think it's going to get game changing. By the way, layer on top of that, just marketing and marketing acumen is going to change dramatically. So, you know, this is an industry where, um, and by the way, if you look over the course of the last five years, you will see that RAAs on average cut their marketing and business development budget by like 50% during this period, you know, and gee whiz, growth slowed down. Um, what we're going to see too, and what you're, you got a front row seat uh, in this, what you're starting to see is, you know, the old industry where all the referrals are fr- coming from, uh, from clients, you know, we now have digital, which is getting more and more technical. We have, you know, sophisticated marketing teams. We have AI, we have, we just have this, this confluence of factors where I think we're at the beginning of a technology uh, evolutionary step in this industry. Now, technology has been great for the last, this industry is probably 30 plus years old. You know, today that's been a great enabler of operations. It's been a great enabler on the investment management side. So it's all been about efficiency. I think we're now at that, that changing point where it's going to shift into marketing and growth. So you have a lot of what we call meta RAAs. There's about 25, two dozen firms out there, you know, that are not only big, but they have sophisticated management teams. They're backed by private equity. They have almost unlimited, you know, access to capital. And they're really thinking through, you know, how they can optimize what they're doing and even change the game. They're quite literally shaping this industry. Now, over the years, some of those things will trickle down to, you know, your firm with a uh, hundred million or a billion or five billion, et cetera. Um, but right now, you know, these organizations are literally in some cases spending tens of millions of dollars on marketing. So I think that's going to change the industry. Do I, I, I think consolidation is going to accelerate further. Um, do I think it's the death knell of the smaller or medium-sized firm? I, I don't, you know, and, and why I say that is, is we are going to see, um, you know, there, there's just low barriers to entry to get into this industry. Matter of fact, we happen to have a, a flow from the wirehouses and, you know, the other IBDs each year that are going fully independent or a variation of, and they're going to continue to replenish the supply. And you can come into this industry without writing a huge check and, you know, serve your neighbors really well, like provide a great service for a reasonable fee and still be in the top 5% earners of your neighborhood. So I don't think that's going away, but... That growing sophistication, the G2 and G3 you alluded to earlier, more of these folks want to do things differently. So, you know, hooking their caboose to a train like yours, synthetic scale, as I call it, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, or or you think it differently. I don't want to put names on your organization or joining, you know, joining by selling to some of these mega uh, meta RAAs. You know, it's really changing the way business is done. So I, I think it's going to be a really fascinating time. I thought it was, you know, I, I listened to an interview that you actually gave at Schwab Impact, your old stomping ground, where you, you know, you referenced this point about these institutional grade companies. And I was like a little bit floored when that, you know, that you made this point around marketing. Like we've at RFG have really identified that as one of the hills we want to die on. We want to invest, you know, not only on the front end in helping advisors develop their brand and their website and their digital presence and their videos and all the rest of it, but we want to invest hard dollars into propelling 
that organic growth in in really the areas where the advisor is kind of most energized? Like where is their passion coming from? Do they want to do seminars or digital marketing or podcasting or events or whatever it is? But it was it was a really interesting like tell all moment for me because I would think of you like you're a trend watcher in the industry. And, you know, for so long, I almost think it would have been the the harder sciences, if you will, that you would point to as kind of the death nail or this like this is going to be the seismic shift. But when, you know, you look at the data Nitrogen just put out that growth survey as part of their their conference at the beginning of October. And you've got, you know, the majority of RIAs and advisors are spending less than 1% of revenue on marketing and branding. And it's like, you need to be at like 10 to 15%. Like you're not even in the game. So I I would say like, here, you know, hear us now, hear, hear Dave Roar here. Yeah. Like marketing is where it's at, especially for G2, G3 and and driving that enterprise value into a firm. Well, what I'd say, too, is, you know, it's going to be such a great time for your firm and ours because we're approaching marketing like technicians. And what I mean by that is, you know, for years, this industry growth was based on charisma or, you know, asking for referrals, which 91 percent of advisors don't do anyway. You know, they just don't. So, you know, but starting to say, and if I'm an advisor and I'm running, you know, half a billion, uh, a billion, hundred million, whatever it is, Sean, to take the time and energy to think through the entire complexity of the marketing equation is overwhelming. But you and me, and we have teams behind us to methodically think through, okay, you know, what's the life cycle of a prospect? What does it look like? What are the different tools? What are the capabilities? How do we create something that, you know, have the right tools in the pantry, the right boxes in the pantry? And then in your organization, I guess mine too. And then helping um, advisors pick and choose and then craft a marketing strategy that makes sense for for them. So, you know, if you don't have full-time marketing um, people that so many of these small companies don't, you're not going to be able to get the growth rates that this industry has, or, you know, uh, you folks are, are cranking out that 19%. So um, yeah, this industry should be growing faster. And I think oftentimes it's going to be partnership with firms like yours and mine yeah. or others that drive that growth. So I want to circle back because I feel like I would, you know, be skewered to not take the opportunity to ask this question of you because you are the guru on the multiple it's one of advisors' favorite topics. Like, I want to throw it on the back of a napkin. I'm looking at revenue. I'm looking at EBITDA. You know, multiples have ranged uh, in the six to eight times EBITDA, three to four times revenue. Debunk that, tie it back to those KPIs. What do you think about it? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'll, I'll start with my uh, my negative side and say, you know, for me, it's just crazy town where someone's selling their business, their, their life's work, really. They've, they've nurtured this little company from, you know, eating top ramen and getting it wheels to creating what it is today. And they're now ready to sell it on, you know, math that like an eight-year-old kid can do in their head. <laughs> it's crazy. Or the next gen is buying in or they're asking the next gen to buy in with their life savings. You know, hey, use your life savings to buy my life's work with math that, you know, a, a young kid can do in their head. This is crazy. So, you know, please get it, get a discounted cash flow, hire a firm like ours or someone else, anyone, please. 
get like a legit valuation that's going to take into effect these 48 different risk factors and the growth trajectory and all this stuff. So please do that. Now, what's happening in the industry is, you know, valuations are at an all-time high um, and they have been for about three years. And back in 2007, it, it was last high. And Shannon, it was unhealthy. It wasn't good. Uh, the firms there were overpaying inappropriately. So today the valuations are higher but I think they're healthy and appropriate for those organizations. Like if you have an organization that has created a better mousetrap and can help any of the required firms have better margins and or grow faster, then you can pay more. If you can't do that, you shouldn't pay more. But if you can, it's logical and reasonable that you can pay more. So some of these valuations, I mean, we've we've sold firms with 300 million for 17 times cash flow. Um, so I don't, and I don't yeah. want to be that banker that says, you know, Multiples are crazy. You're going to get the highest multiple, et cetera. But we do see these all-time highs coming in. What's what's interesting, too, is earlier we were talking about this natural gravitational force to sell internally. And, you know, um, we value firms. And then typically, and we're running into discounted cash flow, the, the firms are selling internally. Historically, it's been about a 25% discount. They're like, you know, these are my friends, yeah. et cetera. I want to make it easier. Um if you take that 25% discount, you realize that uh, if you hire a banker and you get very involved, you'll get a, about a 40% increase. We're at a point in the industry where it's almost two times the value of the firm between selling internally and externally. Wow. Um, and again, I don't want to be that slimy banker that's like the, the sky is falling or whatever else, but we're in a very unique period now where there's just different degrees of tension on decision-making that we haven't had in the past. Um, so yeah, it's a fascinating time. So historically a, a hundred million dollar firm would be, you know, four to six times a billion dollar firm would be, you know, seven to nine times. Um, and then it goes higher from there, 5 billion up, et cetera. You know, in today's environment, it's another turn or two ahead of that. Mm -hmm. So if you have over a billion dollars, you should expect, you know, getting into the teens if you have a strong business. As you were talking about that, it's like you can so clearly see that seesaw in your head of that that tension point yeah. coming in, which is all the more reason to not just like peel through year after year on the calendar or kind of sleepwalking in the business. It's like, no, no, you know, and there, you know, it might be worth for the culture, for the clients, for the G1 advisor, like to end up selling internally, yeah. but they should do that against like a full backdrop of knowledge of, all right, what are all the levers that have to get you know pulled in order to drive a higher valuation? Because one of the interesting things that we're doing a lot more coaching around and thinking around is how do you make your fourth quarter your enterprise enhancing quarter. And it's born some from the evidence that we've witnessed as we've structured internal plans where we've seen this like explosive growth as the G1 advisor now is introducing the G2, G3 advisor and the the experience, that client experience is evolving and you're just professionalizing. And there is that all of a sudden the assets start coming out of the woodwork and you're getting referred more. And like there is an immediate uptick in growth 12 months after you get that deal in place. Like it is, we have yet to have an example where that does not happen and it's significant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm guessing too, it's not only um, operational efficiencies, you know, 
and marketing strategies that are put in place, but it starts to shift the culture, right? Which drives so much, you know, behavior and outcomes. And and I think, you know, people show up for work a little differently. They're like, okay, we're we're part of a a, a cleaner machine here. We're, you know, and I think that also um, contributes to this whip effect that starts to occur. It's really exciting. It is. It's so exciting. Okay. So I have two last questions for you. And one is super in the weeds and you just happen to touch on it. And I think it is one of the most important overlooked points of deal, you know, as you're thinking about a deal. And so I just wanted to come back to it. And it was the buyback clause. Yeah. yeah. People are so like anti, like, I don't want to negotiate my prenup while we're getting married. Mm -hmm. But if you don't spend time on this buyback clause, like, you might as well not even do a deal. Yeah, yeah. It's so scary, you know. And and I get it too. People get tired and, you know, they don't want to talk about the boogeyman or, you know, gee, the clouds might come on the horizon. But it's so important. You got to think through that things might not work out. And what does that look like? And clearly protecting your company. Again, as the heads of these companies, the CEOs, your job is to protect, you know, this organization and the ability to to not only have your employees continue to have employee, but take care of your clients. And literally, we have seen firms get destroyed by not having appropriate buyback clauses. You know, uh, example one example is someone decided to sell the firm, didn't tell the staff, they learned about it. One person got really upset. She was like, I don't really like this. I don't like the deal. I feel like I'm being pushed around. Um, and there were no non-competes, non-solicits. She decided to leave. She drove a huge amount of the growth. And guess what? Her friend at the water cooler decided there she was going to leave too. And she was a 25% owner. So now you have the, the, these two critical people leaving the organization. The buyback clause was so poorly crafted that it said, you have to buy back those shares at last year's price. Well, you just lost the growth engine of the company and 25% of the clients. This firm is worth so much less now, but... You know, you almost incented them. You say, I'm going to pay you to leave and damage the firm because of right. all. So you really got to think through this. And it's just, you know, I think we've, so many of us have built these organizations and we not, we don't need to build it for today. We need to build it for tomorrow, for two years from now to really create that machine and, and uh, ensure that it can sustain these upcoming storms. Critical thing to do. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Last one. One of my favorite hashtags that I use all the time is hashtag RIA of the future. We've touched a little bit throughout our conversation, but what does that mean to you? What does the RIA of the future look like? RIA of the future. You know, I think the RIA of the future, it has so many of the qualities of the REAs of today and five and 10 and 20 years ago. One of the things I just love about this industry, and truly I feel like development company, we're part of this community. I love being part of this community because everyone in this industry is doing the right thing. People that, you know, put on the REA hat, they they become, they they get interested in this industry. They're here to serve clients well and put their clients' needs first. And I think that's driven the success of the the, the industry. So I think that's that's the core that's going to stay consistent. And we might have competitors that pretend like they're REAs, but at the end of the day, if you don't have this value system that's really focused on taking care of U.S. families and the investing public, then that's going to, you know, I think undermine the, the whole model. Now, on top of that, the RIA of the future, I mean, it's going to be different. We're going to see a, a professionalization of this industry unlike what we've seen. Not only these, you know, 25 meta organizations, you know, not only organizations that are benefiting from your capabilities, but there's just going to be a, a, a higher degree of sophistication. There's going to be just this um, gravitational force to 
toward bigger. And in many cases, bigger in industries means better. And it's because as you get bigger, you have more processes, you're, you have more to invest, you have people that can, you know, optimize um, the operations and minimize the administrative headaches. So, you know, I think we'll look back on the, the REA business of today or five years ago, and I think we'll be surprised at, at how far we've come so quickly. It's, uh, it's going to be a fascinating world to live in. I mean, that's a mic drop. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, Dave. I loved it. So much fun. Thanks always fun to hang out with you. Honored to be here. Yeah, yeah. It's always a blast. Thank you for listening to the Disruption Blueprint podcast. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Visit our website at www.rfgadvisory.com or schedule a call on our advisor resources page. And don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Content here is for illustrative purposes and general information only. It is not legal, tax, or individualized financial advice, nor is it a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any specific security or engage in any specific training strategy. Information here may be provided in part by third-party sources. These sources are generally deemed to be reliable. However, neither our guests nor RFG advisory guarantee the accuracy of third-party sources. The views expressed here are those of our guest. They do not necessarily represent those of RFG advisory, its employees, or its clients. This commentary should not be regarded as a description of advisory services provided by RFG advisory or performance returns of any client. The views reflected in the commentary are subject to change at any time without notice. Securities offered by registered representatives of private client services, member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services offered by investment advisory representatives of RFG Advisory, LLC, RFG Advisory or RFG, a registered investment advisor. Private client services and RFG Advisory are unaffiliated entities. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where RFG Advisory and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. No advisory services may be rendered by RFG Advisory unless a client agreement is in place. RFG Advisory is an SEC-registered investment advisor. SEC registration does not constitute an endorsement of RFG by the Commission, nor does it indicate that RFG or any associated investment advisory representative has attained a particular level of skill or ability.